Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Simon Levin, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University. Simon is a giant in the field of ecology, and in the last several decades, his work has extended to the study of social ecological systems and the governance of the commons. I first learned about Simon's work through my PhD advisor, Eleanor Ostrom, who collaborated with Simon, and we spoke a bit about Lynn during our conversation. The first and still primary work of Simon's that I've read is his book, Fragile Dominion, Complexity and the Commons. This is a great introduction to Simon's ideas about complexity in ecology and in our relationship with the natural world. Towards the end of the book, Simon presents eight commandments for environmental management, including reduce uncertainty, expect surprise, maintain heterogeneity, modularity, and redundancy, tighten feedback loops, build trust, and be reciprocal. We didn't talk about these commandments specifically in our conversation, but I would still suggest that folks take a look at what was for me a formative book during my graduate education. In addition to this book, we talked about Simon's views on a range of topics, including climate change, the COVID pandemic, biological and cultural evolution, and interdisciplinary collaboration. I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Simon Levin. All right, so you're just telling me, Simon, about, well, I had just talked to you about how I really liked the Fragile Dominion book, and it was kind of my intellectual company when I was doing fieldwork in New Mexico. So what were you about to tell me about it? Well, I, it, that's a coincidence because Fragile Dominion is based on lectures I gave in, next, in, in New Mexico at, at the Santa Fe Institute, or technically at some location close by to the Santa Fe Institute, because I gave the ULAM lectures, uh, and uh, the book is uh, not word for word what I said there, but certainly was based on the series of, of three lectures I gave down down there at, at um, a little over 20 years ago, I guess now, close to 25 years ago. Hmm. So um, one of the, the first question I really would like to ask you, Simon, is we have a version of it for all of our guests and I call it the kind of the origin story question. And this probably comes from many places. For me, it comes from the superhero movies, right? Where every character has like their origin story, how they transform from one thing into something else. And we all kind of do that in different versions in our lives. And my understanding, so the version of it that I'll put to you is um, my understanding is that earlier in your career, in your education, you were, more of an expert in physics and fluid mechanics and that type of thing. And then there was this initial transition into ecology. And for a lot of our guests, they started out in ecology and then they moved to social science and governance, which I'm also aware is a, a turn you've intellectually taken. But for you, there's this previous step of going from this other field into ecology. And if I have that right, I'd love to hear you initially talk about like how that, how and why that change occurred for you. Well, you're close. Um, actually, I would be more, pro more uh, correct to say that it started in mathematics, although I had a minor in physics. Um, I was very young when I went to college and uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. My brother, who had gone to medical school, told me... Um, don't go to medical school unless you really want to be a doctor much more than I did. Um, do the thing you do best. And what I was doing best at the time was mathematics in high school. I went to Johns Hopkins and got a degree in mathematics. Um, I was 20 when I finished Hopkins uh, and I went to graduate school at the University of Maryland um, in mathematics. Um, I had a minor in physics when I was at, at Hopkins. So you're not far from being true, but the physics that we studied then, uh, there's nothing wrong with it today, but it, uh, it, it doesn't include a lot of stuff. Um, but all the time I was in graduate school in mathematics, I was actually doing things that applied mathematics and I knew I, I didn't wanna be a pure mathematician all, all my life. It, for me, it was too self-indulgent. Um, I, I wanted to apply uh, my mathematical skills to making the world a better place. Um, a lot of the applications to mathematics, and this was in 1961 when I went to graduate school, were in things um, that were um, 
military related or the like. That wasn't what I wanted to do. So I started reading biology, um, mainly ecology, even when I was in, um, in graduate school. Uh, when I got my degree, which was in 1964, I was still young, and I, um, I won an NSF fellowship to go off to Berkeley and work with uh, a distinguished person in operations research named George Danzig, one of the fathers of that field. Uh, um, and we were working on applications of mathematical techniques to uh, problems in physiology. Um, mainly at the active transport of sodium across red blood cell membranes. <clears throat> but I had spent a lot of time in the outdoors and I was really very interested in conservation and preservation. This was the time of um, Rachel Carson and um, Lamont Cole, who became my colleague at Cornell, and Paul Ehrlich, who is my close colleague now, alerting us to the to the problems of a deteriorating environment. Boy, they sure didn't know then where we were going to be uh, 60 years later. Um, but when I got, uh, after a year at, at Berkeley, I was uh, offered a professorship at Cornell in the math department because they wanted to build up applied mathematics there. Um, and uh, so I began in 1965 after my postdoc uh, as a professor of mathematics at Cornell, but with the understanding that I would be building bridges to, in particular, to biology. I was very fortunate because I didn't know when I went to Cornell that it was um, one of the top, if not the top places in the world in ecology. There was nobody doing anything in mathematical ecology, theoretical ecology at Cornell or almost anywhere else. It really wasn't a field that had been developed. But I began sitting in on courses, uh, becoming uh, friends with uh, ecologists. And by 1970, uh, I had uh, ventured enough into ecology that I was offered a uh, adjunct appointment in the, um, in the ecology department, then called the section of ecology and systematics. Uh, and in 1972, when I got tenure, uh, essentially half of that tenure uh, was in the ecology department. Uh, and the, uh, a year later, while I was on sabbatical, they asked me to be chair of the department. And I uh, basically told the deans I would do it uh, if they would move almost all of my appointment and eventually all of my appointment into ecology. My thinking being, um, whatever department you're in, that's going to set what your standards are for what you want your work to be. And I want my work to be relevant to, uh, to what the ecologists are doing. So I became a full-time ecologist in 1974, basically, uh, when I became the chair of the section of ecology and systematics uh, at Cornell. And I worked as a theoretical ecologist for a number of uh, years, I still am. Um, helping to build that field because that field barely existed. Um, there were classic old papers by Vito Volterra, um, the great mathematician and, um, and others, uh, but there were almost no e um, ecology department. At the, first of all, ecology in general was embedded within biology departments where a lot of the tensions were molecular biology. Cornell was one of the few places that actually had an ecology uh, department. Um, but even the ecology department didn't have people, uh, for the most part, trained in mathematics or physics. That's dramatically changed over the last 50 years. And I worked at that craft for about um, 20 or 30 years. I still do. But it was still clear to me that if I wanted to achieve what I had set out to do, which was really to make a difference in dealing with environmental problems, um, I couldn't be restricting my attention to the pure basic aspects of ecology alone. I had to begin to reach out to um, economists, especially, and other social scientists. 
uh, and um, I, I was fortunate in that regard in 1991 or 1992, uh, I was invited to join two groups. Um, one of them, and I had done some things in applied ecology, uh, especially in you know, ecotoxicology. I directed an EPA center at Cornell uh, called the Ecosystems Research Center. Um, the two groups that invited me to join were the Santa Fe Institute, which you mentioned at the beginning, which, uh, which brought together uh, scientists from multiple disciplines who were faced with very similar problems, uh, namely what are called complex adaptive systems, something you know well about from your training with Lynn Ostrom, namely systems made up of lots of individual in, uh, agents that interact with each other on local scales and uh, make their own decisions based on which the systems uh, develop emergent properties, patterning uh, in the structure. Um, the systems operate on multiple scales, which introduces conflicts between what individuals want and what's good for society. Indeed, what would be good for those individuals if they were all band together in the collective good. Um, and almost at the same time, I was invited to join something called the Bayer Institute, uh, which was a branch of the uh, Swedish Academy of Sciences, which brought together ecologists and economists uh, and really terrific economists. Uh, Kenneth Arrow, perhaps the greatest economist of the last century, um, if not of all time, certainly one of the greatest. Um, Partha Dasgupta, who has led the um, recent British efforts on the economics of biodiversity uh, and others together with great ecologists like Paul Ehrlich, who has been uh, my close friend and collaborator ever since, as were Arrow and Dasgupta and others. Uh, and those two experiences helped me really to, um, to build the bridges between those disciplines, to apply what I was learning about complex adaptive systems um, from people at the Santa Fe Institute through a mutualistic interaction to the sorts of problems um, that the Bayer Institute was tackling. And so you know, lo lots of the ideas that came out, like the whole notion of resilience, um, Buzz Holling was also part of the Bayer group at, at the beginning. One of our early meetings was on resilience, resilience in ecological and social system. It led to the development of something called the Resilience Alliance, now the Stockholm Resilience Center, really, uh, with which I've been closely involved ever since. That basically butted off from the Bayer Institute. It led to collaborations with um, Arrow and Ehrlich uh, on scientific issues. It led to collaborations with Dasgupta, uh, which continue to this day. Uh, and I've been involved with both of those institutions SFI and the Bayer Institute ever since, as long as, as well as the Stockholm Resilience Center. I you asked me before we got started how I first met Lynn Ostrom, your mentor and one of the great heroes of anybody who's interested in the commons and public goods and common pool resources. Um, and I'm not certain, but I think I probably met her first at one of the meetings of the Bayer Institute. She was certainly involved with it. Okay. And then, then um, but we became friends and colleagues. Uh, Lynn was a bit older than I was. Uh, and I, I, I just was amazed. I remember one year she and I were um, both invited to lecture in Kathmandu. Uh, and we were at the same time. And I thought about it and I thought about it. I thought that's just too much work to get down there. And, but Lynn went right ahead and uh, nothing phased her. Anyway, uh, uh, I visited Lynn a couple of times at Indiana. And I remember a, a week before her death, maybe even a few days before her death, uh, we were all still working on one of the papers coming out of the, one of the Bayer Institute so-called ASCO meetings. Uh, even as she was, uh, knew she was, um, didn't have long left. She was hard at work at addressing these issues. 
So she, she was an inspiration. Mm. Simon, can you say a bit about how your interaction with her influenced your thinking about the commons and public goods? Well, I, as I'm sure you know, um, one of the big ideas um, at the interface between ecology and let's say sustainability was the notion of the commons. Um, that actually goes back uh, nearly two centuries to William Forster Lloyd, but it was rediscovered uh, by uh, Garrett Hardin um, in the 1950s or 1960s, don't remember the year when he wrote his famous paper in science called The Tragedy of the Commons. And for Hardin, the solution to the problem, which I still ascribe to, and I think Lynn did too, was mutual coercion mutually agreed upon. But for Hardin, that meant um, building a strong top-down government. Uh, and Lynn inspired us by showing how, at least in small societies, this sort of cooperation, this sort of mutual coercion could arise from, from the bottom up. Uh, and so certainly I, I was influenced in my discussions with her. Um, she reached out to me to invite me to come lecture at Indiana about complex adaptive systems, probably shortly after, uh, I don't remember the year, but probably shortly after I wrote Fragile Dominion. Um, so we had lots of discussions at, at the, um, at the Bayer Institute and elsewhere. Um, and I, Paul Ehrlich and I um, had gotten interested in the topic of social norms and what, how they arose and how they change and what their role would be in addressing these problems. Uh, and so Lynn's work, of course, um, had a lot to say about social norms and how they arise and how they were sustained and also and this relates to work I've been doing um, with um, Avinash Dixon, an economist emeritus here at Princeton, and, uh, and several of my students, especially uh, Andrew Tillman, um, is work on the notion of um, structured populations and how, um, how one can build global cooperation, what Lynn and Vincent Ostrom called polycentricity, with local small-scale agreements that could be building blocks for larger agreements. So that work in particular has influenced a lot of what we've done. I, I also began thinking, I, I don't know to what extent um, this was Lynn's influence, certainly some, of the, the various ways in which um, public goods and common pool resources uh, emerge. First of all, there are lots of examples in evolutionary biology um, about public goods and common pool resources, things like the antibiotics that bacteria and plants produce uh, for, for which uh, one could free ride if one simply developed resistance to their antibiotics, but especially um, to, and, and a lot of Lynn's work with the book she edited with Hess, um, on knowledge as a uh, uh, as an ultimate uh, public uh, good, common pool, well, public good, uh, I think, uh, because our sharing of it doesn't use it up in in, in any sense. So um, we've done work on bird flocks and fish schools uh, that are sharing information. Um, uh, just meeting with one of my students yesterday, uh, who's working environmental justice uh, and to, um, to the degree to which um, cooperative um, arrangements, collective uh, intelligence, collective decision-making are essential to, to making sure uh, that, for example, small-scale fishermen and others who don't have the advantages that big company would have, would have of being able to average over lots of environmental conditions, uh, have to share information and, um, and perhaps share resources, revenue, uh, in order to sustain themselves. So uh, I, I've always been uh, sorry not to have heard the next 40 symphonies Mozart would have written uh, had he lived beyond the age of 35. 
or even Beethoven would have uh, written uh, not 40 symphonies, but let's say nine, if he had lived uh, past uh, 56, uh, which is what I think he was when he died. And I would love to have known where Lynn was going to take uh, what she had started to do in addressing problems of climate change and how polycentric agreements were the way to go there. We've tried to carry on uh, as influenced by her, uh, but I would like to have known what she was going to do. Yeah. So Simon, do you, building on that last topic of polycentricity and Lynn's work on climate change, what are your current views on this kind of central dichotomy between bottom up and top down, which is something you just can't get away from in the governance and commons fields. It kind of, so much of our thinking and our discourses relates to this distinction. How does your background in thinking about complex adaptive systems and your work with Lynn, there's, you know, I have an intuition in my head that, okay, that maybe that means that you're more in favor of bottom-up approaches, but, but maybe I'm wrong there. Do you have a stance on that? Well, ultimately, I think um, there have to be bottom-up and top-down approaches that meet somewhere in, in the middle. But, um, for, but understanding the, um, um, one can't ignore um, individual decisions. We're, we're seeing this dramatically uh, in our efforts to deal with the, with the pandemic. Doesn't matter what the government says, you notice even Donald Trump got booed the other night by his group when he said he got vaccinated. Uh, it, it's just, um, it's just uh, remarkable. Um, uh, I was in Munich um, and, and I went to visit Dachau uh, and um, where there's an exhibit of, of the populist approaches in the, in the, uh, in the area leading up to, um, to the Second World War. And I was struck by um, some of the frightening similarities to things we see going on today. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but just a week or two ago, we published a special issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on the dynamics of political polarization. Uh, on the forces um, that lead to separation in our societies. James Madison, who was one of the uh, uh, big forces behind um, the early uh, the Constitution and how our government is structured, um, tried to design a system that would avoid polarization by avoiding political parties which he thought were um, the problem with political parties were that they simplify the dimensionality of the system. And in order to have an effective uh, political system, an effective polity, um, one really needs a high dimensional system so that you and I may agree on certain issues, we may disagree on other issues, but if there are lots of different issues and different people line up differently on them, then there's hope for uh, compromise and agreement. And in fact, um, some of our work shows that that uh, hopefully may make international agreements uh, on climate change easier to agree to to um, to work, to reach. But unfortunately, what's happened in our system, uh, obviously is Madison's view um, didn't pan out. Uh, we ha have an increasingly strong um, role of the political parties. Um, there's a principle in politics known as Duverger's law, which basically explains why in a system like the US's, um, one can never have sustainably more than two um, main parties, as opposed to, for example, the British or Canadian or Israeli system where you have lots of parties who care about small numbers of issues. And what's happened as a result of that, and this has been reinforced, unfortunately, by echo chambers on both sides uh, through social media and, uh, and, um, and the major networks um, in which people tend only to listen to the pundits on the left or the right that reinforce their own views and that's just led to an increase, to a, to a reduction in the dimensionality uh, 
uh, of the space. Um, you're not allowed to, um, in a sense, um, have an issue which accords with the Democratic Party on some issues and not others, or with the Republican Party on some issues and not others. Um, your positions on abortion, on gun control, uh, and remarkably, I mean, this on masks and vaccinations um, become, or on whether the last election was stolen, become so tightly aligned with your party that if you, certainly if you're a, a, um, a legislator, but even, even if you're not, if you deviate from the norms on any of these issues, you will become excommunicated. And that's led to, a, to an unfortunate polarization of the system, which makes um, effective governance uh, increasingly um, difficult. And that's been true on climate change, of course, uh, and um, we've got to find a way around these issues. And I think Lynn is right that it, it's going to involve um, building small uh, agreements, small consortia um, that see the wisdom in, in, in doing something about it. We've, it's not a hopeless situation, I think. We've seen dramatic changes on things like um, smoking in public places. Um, we thought we had seen uh, advances in uh, gender equality, racial equality, and things of that sort. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid we've been back uh, sliding recently, but um, I, I think there's hope for changes in those norms. Um, I, I think there's hope for, uh, for, and we're seeing some of it, for shifts in attitudes towards climate change. Um, we just held a small meeting the other day um, with a remarkable group of uh, people through the sponsorship of the Boston Consulting Group, uh, people ranging from Fareed Zakaria uh, to um, experts in COVID like Roy Anderson from the UK and experts in climate change like Dan Schrag from Harvard, asking what have we learned from uh, the way we um, addressed COVID what were the mistakes we made? What, how can we do better next time? Not just dealing with the next pandemic, but dealing with other threats like climate change, like cybersecurity. And almost every speaker came down to the issue of needing to find ways to build, um, to, to recognize the collective good, to recognize as Pogo said, we have met the enemy and he is us. Um, and that if we don't work together to address the problems of climate change or to address uh, problems of um, dealing with the pandemic, uh, we're all doomed. Um, we wrote a paper recently, and this came up in the meeting, on what's called vaccine nationalism, uh, the notion that, well, let's save the vaccines to use at home and let the other countries worry about it. Well, that doesn't work. It's like saying, as long as there's no hole under my seat in the boat, um, I'm safe from the water. So we've, we've got to, and uh, in, in other efforts, um, uh, I, a, a number of leaders of industry uh, are becoming more and more concerned, uh, and certainly in the military, in recognizing that climate change is a tremendous threat to our security. Um, and that if we, um, uh, if we don't take the longer term view and address climate change, um, we're doomed. And so quite frankly, I think for me, the government is the last step in this process. Uh, if you don't have uh, agreement and support from the bottom up, and the bottom up includes not just uh, individuals, it certainly includes individuals and their willingness to accept decarbonization, for example, but it also includes companies, um, especially multinational companies, it includes insurance companies, especially reinsurance companies, who take even a 10 or 20 year view and recognize that these are real threats. Um, and uh, so I think um, uh, building those agreements and partnerships from the bottom up, it, it, an interesting th uh, thing in the paper this morning or last night was even that the coal miners unions in West Virginia have been urging Joe mentioned to change his attitude because really uh, hmm. because they 
they recognize, because there are lots of uh, safeguards that are put in for retraining coal miners, they recognize that, um, yes, it, you could build a protectionist industry for a short period of time, but the coal is doomed. Uh, and if you don't take the attitude of building towards um, the future, um, you're, you're, you're setting up for a, uh, uh, for a much bigger setback than if you, you address it now. One of the big questions that came up in the meeting that comes up in many meetings that I take part in, including meetings with the Boston Consulting Group about companies, is how do you know when it's time to make a transformation to really change things? And how do you go about doing it? And are you better off doing it gradually as opposed to a dramatic shift? And how do you design for resilience? Uh, and resilience, one of the key features of resilience involves an adaptive capacity, the ability to, to make changes to deal with a changing environment. If you don't have that in, you're bound to collapse eventually. So we have to, to um, we published a paper uh, a few months ago called Governance in the Face of Extreme Events. This was something that came out of the Bayer Institute. Uh, and what we said in the paper, um, this is published in the journal Ecosystems, is we can learn a lot from evolution as to how evolution has dealt with changing environments. Um, but one thing ev evolution doesn't have, uh, because it's largely reactive, evolution doesn't have the capacity to anticipate changes. Um, so it, it, it's not proactive, it's reactive. Um, but we have the capacity to make projections. We know that climate change is a problem. We know we're losing biodiversity. Um, and we know there are gonna be other pandemics that come. Uh, so how do we design systems? How do we transform systems to make them robust in the future so that we're around in 50 or 100 years? Not, not me personally. Uh, maybe you will be personally, but um, I'll be 130 at the time. Um, and uh, so how do you transform um, systems and societies um, to, to deal with the, the 10 to 20 year horizon? Um, hmm. The discount rate, and I'm sure Lynn talked to you a lot about discount rates, the discount rates that people apply to, to um, any sort of issue is crucial to agreements. Uh, there are two kinds of discount rate. One is an um, intra-generational discount rate where we say we don't worry so much about other countries. Uh, that's the way I let off fragile dominion. But there's also the intergenerational discount rate. And, and that's more difficult to deal with because um, um, people don't expect to be around 100 years from now if they're around today. And you've got to get them caring about future generations who aren't around to make um, their own case for what they'd like their worlds to be like. Um, politicians probably have the highest discount rates of anybody because what they're concerned about principally is, um, is getting reelected. To give you an idea of why discount rates are important, uh, in 2006, if you, in, in, um, in uh, in a survey that the Pew Foundation carried out, um, more than 50% of the people were uh, concerned or alarmed about climate change. And, and another high percentage uh, had some degree of concern about it. Um, suddenly, in 2007, 2008, that support collapsed down to about 30, 35%. And now it's built back up. Well, what happened was, 2008, 2009, we had a financial crisis. And people said, well, let's worry about climate change later. Um, we got to worry about the short run. That, that's an example of discounting. The future got discounted even more steeply then. Um, so we've got to, um, um, to get people to care not only about themselves, not only about uh, other uh, people's uh, to whom they are not closely related today, but also to future generations uh, if we're going to solve these problems. We've got to transform our energy systems. Uh, we could maybe get by a few more years like this, but we're going to be in trouble in 10 years for sure. Um, we're going to 
we're going to have outages and, 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 and as well as forest fires and flooding. Uh, we've got them now. That's not even a discounting problem. Uh, hopefully it's not too late to address these problems. But uh, lots of companies uh, are, are moving to these uh, ESGs, environmentally sustainable goals, because they recognize that, that they've got to take steps now. And certainly the insurance companies who are averaging over lots of different companies are, are aware of these um, sorts of things. So um, just like Pascal's wager about the existence of God, um, we've got to uh, take the optimistic view uh, that we can do something about this. Um, and that's basically what I and the people I interact with, uh, the, the, the perspective that we take, even though there are clouds of pessimism that sometimes come overhead. They creep in a bit, yeah. So Simon, one of the challenges that I hear underlying a lot of what you're saying relates to a tension that I learned from David Sloan Wilson, who I met through Lynn when I was doing a postdoc with her, is this difference between cooperation and conflict between groups versus within them. And this idea that there's a synergy between cooperation within a group and conflict between groups. And when I think about the challenges of scaling up governance, this is, this is the tension that I always think about, that it's one thing to produce a public good within a group. It's a separate thing to produce a public good between groups when you have this synergy where, I mean, this is why people, you know, this is why so much of our world looks, looks the way it is, like why professional sports are the way it is, right? Like why do athletes cooperate so much with each other as well? They're in this like conflictual crucible of always having to have this intergroup conflict dictate how well they do as a group. And when you talk about like the mask mandate, et cetera, a lot of what I think about is these intergroup conflicts. Like why do people decide to do so much of what they do within a group? A lot of it seems to have to do with conflict between groups. And there's been this literature that I'm also interested in your opinion on, on culture evolution, gene culture coevolution by Robert Boyd, Pete Richardson, and picked up by Joe Henrik and others on you know the influence that intergroup competition and group selection has. Do you, do you have thoughts on that perspective and how it relates to what you've been talking about? Yeah, well, you raised so many interesting points there. Let me try to, to, to remember them all. First of all, one, one of the, the reason I gave the Pogo example was because indeed, historically, um, a, a lot of the um, degree to which uh, cooperation has arisen is because cooperation within groups um, creates um, um, advantages in conflict with other groups. Um, and as Pogo said, we, we have met the enemy and he is us. The enemy is environmental degradation at the, at, at the, the, the much broader scale. Um, there are lots of mechanisms by with, and you know, this goes back to Lynn's work, there are lots of mechanisms uh, with, uh, with which uh, within group cooperation can be uh, built and sustained. And, you know, one of the things is it often uh, leads to, at, let me take a step backwards. Um, what makes um, cooperation work well is if you have a tight relationship between the, the cooperators, uh, something like um, a reciprocal altruism in which uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or indirect altruism even, um, the sort of um, Yogi Berra story, um, you have to go to other people's funerals because if you don't, they won't come to yours. Um, so as long as there are tight linkages within the groups, that works. And yes, you're right. The way, how, do we, how do we extend that to the global level? That's where I think this, these polycentric approaches come in. As far as um, um, the work of... Uh, uh, Henrik uh, on, on things uh, like the ultimatum game and the dictator game uh, or Boyd and Richardson's group or Sam Bowles and Herb, Herb Guinness's group. Um, I, I like that work a lot um, um, and in terms of understanding how, um, how social norms arise and are established and govern behaviors. Uh, and, and I'm certainly in agreement is the, that we've got to find ways to extend that uh, 
um, beyond um, uh, the individual groups. I, I, I will stay away a little bit from, from the issue of cultural evolution. There's no question that there's some degree, and I mentioned Mark Feldman's work as well on that, on gene culture co-evolution. Um, but um, this takes us into the realm of, um, uh, of group selection, which is one of the most controversial uh, areas in evolutionary biology, and, and even up to the level of Gaia. Uh, the, the, the mechanism I like to cite, and if, if, if you remember from reading my book, uh, I think I talk about it in there, is there, there's another sort of selection mechanism that goes on. Imagine that you, you have an old car that you're driving down a ruddy road and pieces are falling off. Um, then one of two things is likely to happen. Either so many pieces will fall off that the car can't run anymore and it stops, or things stop falling off and what you're left with is a much more resilient and robust organism. And if you're waiting down at the end of the line, the only car trucks you're gonna see are the pretty resilient ones. This is what Lewinton called transformational evolution. Um, this, this basically defines self-organizing systems and systems that have uh, in them um, self-destructive properties. Um, you would hope, uh, you would expect would, um, <clears throat> would eventually um, disappear. And, and the only ones that you'll see will be fairly robust. The, diff, the, the problem with that argument is, look what we're doing to the environment now. Um, we're not producing little baby systems with, uh, with properties that will be reinforced if the systems evolve. If this system collapses and go and read Jared Diamond's stuff, um, then that's all she wrote. And there'll be some other system that's left, but there won't be any people left in the system. And we're doing an experiment in which we're polluting the environment. Uh, and the notion that somehow, the Gaia notion that um, the earth is gonna look out for us and adjust its system just to meet our needs um, doesn't make any sense. The reason the system is um, exactly right for our conditions is not because it's adjusted itself uh, to us, but it's rather uh, we're the things that can survive in this particular environment. It's what the physicists call the anthropic principle. We, there's an observer bias to it. Now, certainly there's been some coevolution that goes on, but not enough to guarantee our survival. So I, I don't think we can rely, and, and nor do I think any of the people that we've cited here would think that we can rely on the system um, self-organizing itself uh, to always um, persist. We've got to make that happen. Uh, and the only way we can make that happen is by using our capabilities to predict and project uh, what the future is going to be, to lay out what the solutions that are, and most difficult, and I think we can do both of those things, but most difficult uh, is getting international cooperation and agreement on the steps that are necessary. And I must say, the recent signs and even dealing with something like the pandemic, which terrible as it is, um, is nothing compared to what will happen uh, if we get a four or five degree uh, Celsius uh, increase in temperature globally. Uh, that will be a problem that um, that we're not we we won't be able to reverse, and there'll be um, huge impacts uh, on society. So, so the real challenges are in. Um, uh, maybe in the social sciences, maybe in ethics, which is um, finding ways uh, to get people to be willing to work together towards collective solutions. Um, and um, I, I must say, um, I, I'm less optimistic now than I was two years ago after watching our inability, you know, inspired before that by by our efforts, for example, during the Second World War to do what everybody perceived to be in the, at least the national uh, interest. Um, I don't see that happening. Uh, and I think that the, yet, and I see the trends towards um, individualism, libertarianism, um, 
I can do whatever I want with my body as long as it uh, doesn't involve abortions. Um, th this notion uh, is, um, uh, is, is making solutions to, um, to our common problems uh, more difficult. And uh, we, we've got to find a way to reverse that trend. Yeah, it seems like one key difference between World War II and say things like climate change and COVID is that there was identifiable like anthrop anthropogenic outgroup. It's this other group of people and we can't seem to get ourselves to think about climate change and the pandemic as an outgroup that we all want to you know, work together to combat. Like we can't seem to harness that psychology for that so far. So far, that's, that, that's exactly uh, the point. And uh, unless we do, we're gonna be in, in, in big trouble. Uh, some other nations have done it. Uh, and um, uh, sort of building on Lynn's ideas, um, if we can get the US um, on board on these issues, um, then there's hope. If we can't, um, then I don't see how we resolve these problems. I mean, ultimately, I think people will get on board. Um, but the question is, will it be too late? Yeah. I mean, Simon, are there any, so in the last two years, you said that you feel less hopeful. Are there any silver linings or bright spots for you for the last two years? Yeah, I mean, there. It, it's always, first of all, we've demonstrated um, with the development of the vaccine, uh, our, our ability um, to harness science to, uh, um, to address at least some of, some of the problems. Uh, one of the discouraging trends recently, uh, I think, is the, um, um, the decline in, in, the, in, in, in the role that science is playing. I'm sure that scientists are, are still one of the most trusted groups um, of any within the U.S., but at, but at, at much lower uh, approval level um, than, than it was a few years back. Uh, the idea that somebody like Tony Fauci has become uh, a, to, to many a villain just would have been incomprehensible to me uh, several years ago. It's still incomprehensible to me. Um, but um, so uh, I'm convinced we still have the scientific capabilities. And, and obviously, there's still a large groups of people who are committed to addressing these problems. Um, but unless we address um, issues of, um, of equity uh, and environmental justice. Um, we have no hopes of, of solving these problems. Yeah, go ahead. Just like Pasco, and you know, you know the story of the great physicist who had a horseshoe over his door, and someone who visited him and, and, uh, and said, Professor, uh, surely you don't believe uh, in that. And he said, no, oh, no, of course not. He said, but they tell me it works even if you don't believe in it. So, um, I, so that, I mean, that's the only hope we have is to take that point of view and, and hope that uh, these trends will be reversed uh, and, um, and we can move back to a collective uh, identity. I, I have no evidence over the last several years that that's the case. I, that there, there, there's a small glimmer. Um, some of the studies we, we've been doing are uh, on mask wearing. As you know, if you've ever traveled in the Far East um, in the past during flu season, mask wearing has always been a tradition there uh, in China and Japan and uh, countries of that sort. People wear masks during flu season. And obviously they're still doing that today during COVID. If you travel in the Nordic countries, that's never been the tradition uh, and, and, it, um, and nothing's changed. People are not wearing masks. But in a multitude of countries, including the US, uh, where mask wearing has never been a tradition, um, there's been a big transformation, a change in social norms. Unfortunately, it only involves a fraction of the population, but it's about, uh, it, the last time I looked, it was about 70% uh, uh, of the population or so who have been willing, at least under some conditions, uh, to wear masks. So. Uh, and, and there are lots of other examples of uh, 
uh, of changes in social norms. Sam Bowles has documented a lot of the work on um, the decline of foot binding in China, one of the famous examples. I've mentioned examples of uh, changes in smoking in public places, at least in the US, gender equality, racial equality. Um, every time we take a step forward, we take a half a step back just so it's not two steps back. Uh, we saw um, attitudinal changes even in South Carolina towards the um, flying of Confederate flags after events down there a few years back. So we know there is the potential for change in social norms. I, I think we don't get the solutions of these problems uh, unless we can change those social norms. Uh, I think that's where the, um, uh, that's where the, the hope lies. Uh, and I, um, you can give me your opinion, but I think that's um, sort of the attitude that Lynn would have had, that we couldn't rely on um, Garrett Hardin's role for government. You've got to change attitudes and opinions from the bottom up. Uh, and at the international level, you've got to change attitudes and opinions within a sufficient number of countries that you can get agreements. And that has to include, obviously, um, the major players like the U.S. and China uh, and India. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Your example of the the technological success we've had, say, in the U.S. with developing the vaccines is, for me, was this extraordinary miracle, and it changed all our lives. And I and I read a, an article that was kind of reflecting on how things had gone during the pandemic in the U.S. And it said that the author was basically not surprised that we we succeeded technologically, but we have failed behaviorally. Yeah. And it's this concern that, I mean, and in a way, like that's how it kind of feels like it would play out. that we're really good at technology and we're good at problems that we can technologize our way out of. But it's a lot harder. And this is this is driven into me as a graduate student and for the last 15 years is that you know, even in Garrett Hardin's essay, he says there's a class of problems to which there are not purely technical solutions. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the um, um, one of the dangerous things is to think we can rely um, on technology always to get us out of the fix. Uh, we see in this example uh, that's um, that's not the case. Um, I, I've been going around lecturing on um on theoretical ecology, uh, the achievements of the last century and where it has to go. And this was before the current pandemic. And my argument has been in there. It's not, um, we, we've got to continue to make advances in science, of course, but we will. We've got to continue to make advances in technology, but we will. But the real emphasis has to be on the social sciences uh, and, and how, we, uh, how we get people um, to, to recognize um, th that we all benefit if we work together to address these problems. Um, one, one of the aspects of polarization uh, that's a feature of this special issue, um, which is a reality, is what's called effective polarization, which means you assume a, a particular attitude simply because it's the opposite of, uh, of the people you regard as your enemies. Uh, I mean, that's ridiculous, but that's where we are today. Um, and uh, so, yes, the, I, I think on, the solution to all of these problems is impossible without the social sciences. That's a position I came to uh, years ago. Uh, that's why I've made all, my, this commitment to, uh, to working with economists and social scientists. Um, and um, um, I, I, I still remain hopeful that, um, that we can make progress mm. in that area. It's, by the way, it's not just the social sciences, it's the humanities as well. It's religious leaders, it's ethicists who um, have to be brought on board uh, and, uh, um, and, and, and hopefully lead their adherence along the way. Obviously it's politicians as well. Um, we're going through a bad period in the U.S. right now in that regard. I don't know if we can reverse that, but I, but it's, but we have to. Yeah. So Simon, the last question I had in my notes for you 
builds pretty directly on what you were talking about. And it gets back to this question of scientific collaboration that was kind of underlying what you were talking about, talking about how you want to engage with social scientists and humanists, et cetera. And throughout this conversation, I've heard you describe these many interactions you've had with lots of different folks from different disciplines. And in the field of the commons, in the field of social ecological systems, this is, you know, interdisciplinarity is seen as a strong normative tenet. It's what we all say we want to do. And then, like a lot of things, once you actually try to do it, it turns out it's really hard. There's different groups. It's hard to get over a kind of mutual dismissiveness about the challenges that different scientific groups face in doing their work. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of, it takes a lot of work and attention and energy to actually learn about different disciplines. So in your experience, how have you been able to meet those challenges when you think about the successful interdisciplinary collaborations you've had, where we get beyond maybe this kind of, I call it the baton model of interdisciplinarity, right? Where you have like a relay race where the social scientist runs and hands off the baton to the ecologist and then they do their part. And then we kind of are just handing off the baton without really engaging with each other. How do we meet that challenge to come up with the kind of science that can promote change and, and describe systems more holistically? Great, great question. And I've been very fortunate in uh, interdisciplinary collaborations. Obviously, if you know economics, you'll know that the people I mentioned at the Bayer Institute are, are uh, truly the tops. I read a paper many years ago. I, I, I've been looking for it ever since. I can't find it, but I remember what it said. It was uh, by a great mathematician named Mark Kotz, K-A-C, um, in which he said that mathematical physics really only took flight when the mathematicians who were working in the area became physicists. When they learned enough about the disciplines in which they were getting involved um, that they could ask the questions themselves. This is not, doesn't work. Um, for example, uh, I, I learned in mathematical biology, if the mathematician uh, sits in his or her office and waits for the biologist to come along, the biologist says, here's the problem I want you to solve. And the mathematician works with the equation. The mathematician has to be willing to get in and say, but isn't this the interesting question? Um, and so I had many years of doing that in biology. Uh, I don't introduce myself anymore as a mathematician. I introduced myself as an ecologist. And I think whatever success I had is, came not from solving problems, but asking the right questions. That's really um, the more important task for a scientist. The Bayer Institute um, was a wonderful culture for this because we the same group of people met, uh, the, at least the core of us, uh, for many years. Um, in fact, some of us are still going and Ken Arrow kept going uh, in, in, until the year he died, uh, just a few years back, um, where first of all, you have to know that the people you're interacting with are unqualified experts in their field. You have to know that the people you're working with have the same ultimate goals that you do. You, know, you have to be able to trust their science and you have to not only listen to them, but believe that they're listening to you. And if that happens, um, then the ecologists become economists and the economists become ecologists to some extent. Um, and that's why I think that the Bayer Institute is the most successful example of that that I, that I know of. The Santa Fe Institute's close, but what made Bayer Institute special is there were really two disciplines involved there. There was ecology and there was economics, but that included Lynn, um, uh, who was not trained, I guess, as an economist. Um, but, but certainly the, uh, we were able to focus on learning those two disciplines. Santa Fe's been very successful as well, but th there we have physicists, we have anthropologists, we have ecologists, uh, we have mathematicians, but there is a lot of mutual respect that goes down, down there. Uh, and the focus on complex adaptive systems 
uh, has made everybody come in. Everybody comes in and say, well, that's the way my system works too. I've got individual agents. They're making their own decisions. They affect the, the course of society. What can I learn from your methods, et cetera? Um, so you've got to have people who trust each other um, and um, who enjoy learning from each other. We tried to jumpstart that, and I think we had some success with this issue on the dynamics of political polarization. In, pol in politics, there's much less uh, of a history of that than in, mathematics, uh, than in uh, economics uh, and its relation, say, to mathematics and uh, other fields. Um, but we ran a, a series of meetings, and then the issue is put together, each one a collaboration between complex systems theorists um, and, um, um, and political scientists. Um, Andy Lowe and I, Andy's an expert in the financial system, uh, organized another special issue a little less than a year ago uh, on um, evolutionary perspectives on financial markets and financial regulations, where we did exactly the same thing. Every paper was a collaboration, but often between people, usually between people who hadn't collaborated before. So I think um, um, there are formulas, there are ingredients. Uh, I'm, I'm completing a paper now with uh, some economists about uh, the bridges between natural sciences uh, and, um, and economics and the, the barriers to it. And, and a lot of the focus there is on the, on the fact that it's much more difficult for junior people to engage in these partnerships than senior people. Um, it, it, and, and also there are um, other um, asymmetries in building new fields, um, but that the people who are successful at it are people who have enough humility that uh, they think they have something to learn from people uh, in other disciplines. And, and I think it can work. And that's one of the things um, that I'm most enthusiastic about. Almost all of the students in my lab uh, are interdisciplinary uh, in their work. And, and one of my philosophies and how you train those people is um, anybody you want to train in interdisciplinary science, you make sure they have a discipline that they can bring to the table so that they're expert on something. And then you make sure they're good listeners and respect uh, what other people are bringing to the to the table, but it's but it's tricky because you have to have a lot of confidence uh, that the other person knows what she or he is talking about when it um, comes to their own discipline. Uh, and um, there are trends in in environmental economics and ecological economics examples of partnerships that are successful and those that aren't. And that was that's true in mathematical biology uh, as well. So, um, but, but those partnerships are there, uh, and they've been among the most, the most rewarding, if not the most rewarding things I've done in my career. Yeah. The, these two ingredients that you identified, Simon, make a lot of sense to me. The combination of having a core of expertise, being someone who can take something, bring something to the table, but also having a kind of psychological openness or humility yeah. and being able to combine those two. Cause it, it, you know, superficially or intuitively you could you could imagine one crowding the other one out and there are lots of examples of that as yeah. well but well this has been great simon i don't i want to be sensitive to your time and how much i'm taking of it are there other issues that you want to discuss threads that we started but didn't finish that you want to make sure that we talk about before we wrap up no no i think we've uh, we've covered things you gave me a lot of latitude to uh, to just ramble on, and I, I, I think I've touched on um, the most important things. I, I, I think um, uh, even though there are setbacks, uh, we have to remain positive uh, because um, there, there is no alternative. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And thanks for sharing your experiences with Lynn. It's you know kind of bitter, obviously bittersweet to think about her. Um, yeah. She passed away the year I left Indiana and came to Dartmouth. And it was just this very surreal, sad um, part of that transition. Yeah. yeah. No, she was a remarkable, a remarkable one. Yeah. Some people. Yeah. And, and you when you mentioned, you know, you're lucky to have had her as a 
advisor. Sometimes people just come into your life and you have to kind of just be grateful that they're there. I mean, she's changed my life more than anyone who's not related to me, basically, is how I put it. Yeah. Well, and I've had lots of people like that uh, in my life. You've got to be be thankful for them. Uh, Not everybody gets them. No, that's true. Very true. Well, Simon, thanks again for your time. This has been terrific. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Thanks for, uh, for, for doing it. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. IASC.